Last week, I began a new sermon series on the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And it is not a book of history. That doesn't mean it's not true. It's just it's not historical stories of what God does through his people like Second Kings was in our Old Testament reading. Ecclesiastes is not a book of laws that we are supposed to obey like Leviticus or some of those books. It is not a book of prophecy with words of correction and promises of hope like Isaiah or those books. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom literature meaning it helps us to see how to live best in God's world. Ecclesiastes especially helps us to find joy in living for God in a world that can often seem pointless and painful. And as we look at today's passage, it is kind of a good time to just pause for a moment and consider who wrote this book. Now, ultimately, God wrote the book as he inspired whichever human author by his Holy Spirit to write these words down. But who was the person who wrote them? Now, many believe King Solomon wrote these words because he identifies himself as a king in Jerusalem. And who was wiser than Solomon? Who had more stuff than Solomon? So it seems like he's a really good choice, and he is. But he also says he had more than anyone before him in Jerusalem. Well, Solomon was the second king in Jerusalem, meaning there was one guy before him, dad, David. And so boasting that he has all he has more than anyone who came before him is like saying, I'm the best player on the pirates. Like, good for you. But is, it, like, is that really that big of an accomplishment to be the best player on the Pirates? And so we're not entirely clear if Solomon wrote this. We don't know. But as we read today, it sounds very Solomon-ish because he's saying he had it all. And we know that Solomon had it all. He had everything he ever wanted. Riches, possessions, wisdom beyond the wealthiest billionaires of today. And as we'll see, even though he had all of those things... He wasn't happy, truly happy. He was unfulfilled. And so as we go to the word today, as God speaks through his word today, I want the question in our minds to be this. Why does a happy life always seem just out of our reach? Why does a happy life seem just out of our reach? And so as we have that question in our minds, let us go to the Word today. You can find it in your bulletin or the Bibles. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. And we're going to go through the end of verse 2 as he takes us on his journey to figure out why can we not be happy. So Ecclesiastes 1, beginning in verse 12. Let us hear the Word of the Lord. I... The preacher have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, 
surpassing all who were over me, all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem." Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly, for what can a man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet... I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and a striving after wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is a vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let us pray. O God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a God who has spoken that You speak even today through Your Word. And I pray, O Lord, that Your Word would speak as You, O God, use me in spite of my sin by the power of Your Spirit to faithfully proclaim Your Word that we might know what You are saying, that You might apply it to our hearts and minds. Lord, give us ears to hear. Work in us through the power of Your Word, O God, that You might build us up, correct us and convict us, and even convert those of us who do not know You. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to live wisely for you as we listen to your word and so treasure Christ above all. In his name we pray. Amen. If you weren't here last week, you're probably like, man, this is really depressing. Welcome to Ecclesiastes. Just like some of the Psalms take us deep in the pain of people that they're going through. Ecclesiastes takes us deep into the philosophical mind of what is the point of any of this. But it does that to show us the light. It takes us deep in the darkness to lead us towards the light. And so our question today, why does a happy life always seem just out of reach? We're meant to feel like it's going to stay that way, but he shows us at the end there is hope. So we're going to go through this passage. He's going to show us his problem. He's going to show us all the steps he took to figure out what he's saying. And then he's just going to point us towards the light at the end. And so what we see at the beginning of our text is that happiness is a major problem. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business. The author is saying, guys, I did it. I used all of my wisdom to figure out how to live life wisely, how to be happy. I've looked and I've looked, and guess what? Life is unhappy. That's his conclusion that he's sharing with us. Five times he says that trying to find happiness is like striving after wind. It's like going out in a field and you feel the wind blow and you're like trying to grab it. Or as Nick said, it's like trying to catch a bubble. Good luck. It's gone real quick. 
You're just chasing something you can't hold on to. You're chasing something that you're not going to catch. That happiness is elusive. But you're all like, I've been happy before, right? You, you know what happiness is. We had Silas's birthday party yesterday. I can assure you that kid was happy. Real happy. You've had happiness exchanging gifts on Christmas morning. Your team won the big game. You had a lovely dinner out with friends. You held your grandchild for the first time. Happiness happens. But the author is telling us it is fleeting. It's not deep and abiding. It doesn't stay with you. That the happiness you have felt has faded and it often fades quickly. That you return home from vacation to all the troubles of life. Your celebration ends. The Christmas tree comes down. Your beloved grandchild who you held in your arms is now a tantrum-throwing toddler. We all wish we could be happy all the time, but we are not. Happiness doesn't last. That's what he's telling us. Because a lot of things keep us from happiness in this broken world we live in. Verse 15 of chapter 1 says, What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. The author is observing the uncurable brokenness of our world that no matter how hard we try, we cannot eliminate sickness, suffering, and death. We cannot rid the world of injustice and violence and hatred and cruelty. We cannot count the ways in which the world is less than it could and should be. It is lacking. And the longer we live, the more we see of the world's brokenness. We are left feeling like verse 18. For in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more we think about all the suffering and pain in life, the less happy we are. I can distinctly remember this happening to me. We were in seminary in Chicago, and on the Chicago news, this story popped up of a man who had brutally murdered his children. And as I sat there reading that story, just weeping, the one thought going through my mind is, God, I wish I could unknow this. I wish we could just hit undo and I could go back to not knowing that this happens in our world. We have a world full of unhappiness and violence and pain. And sometimes the more we hear about it, the easier it is to despair and to realize how fleeting happiness is. The author of Ecclesiastes is telling us, I have looked at the world at all there is under the sun, and it is unhappy. That phrase, as we talked about last week, under the sun means a world without God, looked at just from a natural or secular perspective, a horizontal view of life, that any moment of happiness eventually gives way to sadness and cruelty and brokenness. That the only happiness we experience falls under the category of ignorance is bliss. That all we have are fleeting, vain distractions from the unhappy business of life. But we might be thinking like, man, cheer up. That's, that's a really bleak outlook on life. 
How can you be so sure, Mr. Ecclesiastes? How are you so confident in saying this? How can you be so sure that there's not true happiness out there? And the very fact that any of those questions go through our mind reveals a lot about us. That we always think true happiness is out there. We literally wrote it into our nation. Life, liberty, and the pursuit, the chasing, the grasping of happiness. We always believe happiness is out there. That we are going to find it. That we are reaching for it. And if we could just have slightly longer arms, we would get there. I bet all of us right now could think about a time recently when you thought, I know I would be happier if I only had blank. Now, maybe you didn't use those words and speak them out loud, but I bet we have thought something similar to that. If only I had a raise at work. If only we had a different house. If only I had more friends at school. If only my parents let me do what my friends get to do. If only I had the newest version of this thing that they're selling. If only we had different weather this week. If only I didn't have this physical condition. If only my spouse changed just a little bit more. We all think that happiness is just out of our reach. That if we just had a little more, we would find that elusive happiness. And the author of Ecclesiastes is here to shatter that hope. And he does so because he tells us, I have literally tried all of those things. Every single one of them. The things that you see is out of your reach, I reached them, grabbed them, and enjoyed them. And I'm still not happy. He had it all. In verse 10 of chapter 2, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. That's, that's the, uh, the ancient version of treat yourself. That he treated himself to every potential pleasure that was available on earth. He lived life to the max, seeking happiness. He, plant, he built houses. He planted vineyards. He made gardens and parks with fruit trees and pools and irrigation systems. He had all the animals he could ever want to cook and roast and barbecue. He had male and female slaves to wait on him, hand and foot, silver, gold, all kinds of treasure, singers, entertainers, ancient Netflix, singers and entertainers, and concubines. Any woman he could want in the world was his. He had it all. And he tells us his heart found pleasure in all of it. It was good. He enjoyed it. But then in verse 11, it says, Then I considered all that my hands had done. In other words, a moment had passed for him to reflect on that happiness. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Do you hear that? This man who literally had everything that he ever wanted to make him happy wasn't happy. 
In fact, it did the opposite. He says in verse 17, So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. The word for grievous and the word for unhappy back in chapter 1, verse 13, are the same word. That it is this this wickedness, this unhappy, this grievous life that he sees. Even though he had everything that we think would make us happy, he tells us he wasn't happy. Well, you've got to explain yourself, dude. That doesn't seem right. Maybe you're messed up. And so, why? Why did he feel that way? He gives us three reasons in verses 12 through 23 of chapter 2. First, he says, as great as wisdom is, we all end up in the same place. He admits like, hey, being the wealthiest king around was better than being poor. It was better than living in a cardboard box downtown. It was better than that. And yet, the most accomplished and wisest people in the world die just the same as those who are fools and poor. How the wise dies just like the fool. That's what he says in verse 16. What is the point of pursuing wisdom if we all end up in the same place? That was reason one. Second reason he wasn't happy is he saw that all the stuff he did had to go to someone. And I'm guessing he looked at his kids, Jehoahaz and whatever their names were, and was like, I'm not sure they're going to do a good job of this. You know, that's what Josiah was probably thinking. We saw that in our Old Testament reading that he did so much good. He put away all the bad stuff. He reestablished the good stuff and the Pharaoh in Egypt killed him. And within months, they were getting plundered by the Egyptians. Exorbitant taxes being sent out. It was awful. They had a puppet king. What did it matter if Josiah lived wisely if the moment he died, it all went out the window? What does it matter? That's the second reason he was unhappy. The third reason he wasn't happy is that as good as he had it, life was still hard. It was unsettling. I think we can relate to verses 22 and 23 of chapter 2. It says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun. For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Days full of sorrow and vexing work, and restless nights. Whether you work the night shift or run a Fortune 500 company, you still have to face the sorrows and suffering of life. Whether you go to sleep in a modest, crumbling house or a five-star penthouse hotel, you can lay awake restless at night wondering, why am I doing any of this? It's the third reason. He's looking at life. He's looking at life and like, what? What, what is happiness? How do I get it? All of us imagine that happiness is just out of our reach. We can picture what a happy life would look like. And he's telling us that picture was reality for me and I wasn't happy. That happiness has been elusive ever since Adam and Eve in the garden desired more than what God had given them. And as a result, we are dissatisfied. We are dissatisfied in this crooked world. 
This is that point in the sermon where we feel the lowest, we're down, we're hopeless, we're vexed. And like last week, it's, this is bleak. He gets us to some bleak spots in Ecclesiastes. How can we possibly be happy if we're all going to die in the end? How can we be happy if we live in such a crooked world? Do we have to ignore the pain and pretend it's not there? Do we have to settle for the bliss of ignorance? Or can we actually find happiness? Well, in the last three verses of chapter 2, the author points us in the right direction. And he starts by writing this. There is nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now, the author seems to be saying that the best we can do is enjoy what you can. Life is hard. Relish the good stuff because there's not much of it. It sounds suspiciously like make the best of this bad situation. It sounds like he wants us to sing, don't worry, be happy. Or hakuna matata. And just kind of forget it all. And enjoy what good there is. But the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to not turn a blind eye towards reality. It's to look the darkness square in the face and realize that life under the sun without God is meaningless. He wants us to do more than put on a happy face. And so what he's doing is pointing us to what he says about the hand of God. Verse 24 says that enjoyment in this life is from the hand of God. That everything good that we have is a gift from Him. That gift language is what we need to grab onto. Because all the works that this author, Solomon or whoever, did were His works. He toiled over them. He labored over them. But now he says the key to enjoying life is seeing it as a gift from God. A gift that we don't deserve. That we don't deserve anything good in this life. But a good and generous and gracious God exists who gives us many good things. And the reason we struggle to be happy is that we're looking too much at the gift and not enough at the giver. Because if we only look at these earthly gifts to make us happy, we are eventually going to be confronted with the fact that these earthly gifts run out. As we celebrated Silas's fourth birthday yesterday and he opened toy after toy after toy after toy, I was thinking about this message and thinking about all of the grandparents who were sitting around watching him and realizing not a single one of them had a toy from when they were four. They're all gone. He was so happy, exuberant. If you could just bottle the joy that he felt opening those things. And yet, those of us sitting there watching him, we all had felt that joy and it was gone. That we cannot find joy solely in those things because they're going to run out. They're going to not be good enough. We're not going to be be able to enjoy them forever. But, if we see the good things in life as gifts from God then we can see that God doesn't run out. God lasts forever. And that He can continue to give us good things for all eternity. He even says after we die. 
And so this, the gift of our earthly life and all the good things we enjoy in this life are meant to point us to heavenly treasures that we are given in Christ. And let me tell you, as happy as Silas was for his birthday presents, we need to be happier about heavenly treasure. Because we all, every single one of us, underestimate the value of heavenly treasure. It is impossible to correctly appreciate just how good eternal life is. It is. It is impossible to evaluate how perfect heaven is going to be. How good it is going to feel to fully be rid of all of your sinful desires. To never be ashamed of anything you've done or thought anymore. And how joyous it will be to see Jesus in the face, the one who died for you and gave all of this to you as a gift. However good we think those joys are, they are better than that. Way better. The crookedness of this world is going to be made straight. That every, everything that we see in this life that is lacking is going to be filled to overflowing. That is what Christ is coming to do and has done. And we are called to receive it as a gift. It is not something we toil for in our own effort. It is something we receive from His hand because Jesus purchased it with His life, His death, and His resurrection. And so you cannot spend enough money to buy happiness in this life. You cannot work hard enough to achieve lasting happiness on earth. You cannot be good enough to deserve heavenly happiness. You can only receive it from the hand of God. For this humble attitude of faith is what pleases God. He loves to give good gifts to His children. So let us not live searching for happiness merely in this life, because that is like chasing bubbles and striving after the wind. Instead, let us seek first the kingdom of God, telling others of this gift of heavenly happiness for them in Christ. And may we see that we have this great work of witnessing as a labor God has called us to, knowing that all of the other things God will provide for us in life. And we can enjoy them. Our food, our drink, and whatever calling He has called us to serve in this life, we can be thankful for them as good gifts. Because they are just mere foretastes of the heavenly happiness that Jesus is preparing for us. Let us pray. Well, Lord, we pray that You would help us to long for that heavenly happiness. And we pray that by Your Spirit, You might help us to enjoy foretastes of that. Little morsels of heavenly happiness as we gather with our church family, as we gather and savor the promises of Your Word, as we enjoy the freedom we have in forgiveness, as we experience the hope and peace that eternal life in Your love gives us. God, we pray that You would help us to give thanks for all of the good gifts we have in life. May we not be entitled or greedy or jealous of others, but may we rejoice in the treasures that Christ is storing up for us in heaven. And may we serve Him, storing up more and more, knowing that heaven will be far better than we can imagine. In His name we pray. Amen.